Jim and I had been married for a couple of years when we decided to buy a little home in between Loma Linda and Redlands. He was in his residency, and we soon realized that there was no possibility we were ever going to keep the lawn green unless we put in a sprinkler system. And so that began the first of several projects for us. I remember uh, we were lucky because he went out and rented this trench digger, and in one day we had the front and the backyard done and the garden. It was a long project, it was hard work, but it was done. Our next project came after we had moved to the Bay Area. We had moved there when I was pregnant with Mark and Lisa, and we had moved into this little row house in San Francisco. Neighbors on either side that you could hear snore, and the backyard terraced concrete. And after we had lived there for several years, we looked at each other and we said, we have got to get some lawn. And so we moved north and we rented a little house. The backyard had a nice lawn. The front yard was covered with vinca vines. It wasn't very attractive. I really wanted lawn. And so we went to our landlord and we said, would it be possible if we did the labor, if we could put in grass and a sprinkler system? He happily said, sure, go right ahead. And so that was our second project. You can imagine my delight when we were moving down here to Southern California and we looked at the house that we currently live in and the entire yard had a sprinkler system already in it. Jim noticed right away it also had a whole bunch of extra valves, which meant there was space to expand. And so we began our last project, I hope ever, because this one was the most difficult. If you live in Yukaipa, you know there are lots of rocks. Little rocks, big rocks. What it meant was we could not use a trench digger. And so we got out the pick and the shovel, and over a period of weeks, we dug over 800 feet of ditches. Hard work. I suppose with that background, it comes as no surprise that I'm tuned into stories about ditches. And there just happens to be one in Scripture. It happened close to 80 years after the death of, of Solomon. Israel had split into two kingdoms. You remember there was Israel and Judah. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And Jehoram was now the king of Israel. Jehoram was Ahab's son. And Ahab is listed as the most wicked king ever. So Jehoram gets the great distinction of not being quite as bad as his father, but still not good. He still was not a follower of God. So there is a map I want to show you. You can see here is Israel, and here is Judah, and then over right down here is the country of Moab. Now, Moab and Israel had been enemies for a very long time. In fact, clear back when David was king, they had fought, and the Moabites had become subject to the Israelites. And so for all of those years... Every single year, the Moabites had to pay Israel 
100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a huge tax. And they were not happy about it. It continued, though, from David, Solomon, on down to Ahab. Now Jehoram was king, and Misha, the king of Moab, says, I'm not going to do this anymore. We don't want to pay. And so they rebelled. And Jehoram says, I'm not going to stand for that. They owe us that money, so we're going to go to war. But he was a little concerned that he didn't have enough troops. So he called his good friend, well, sort of, Jehoshaphat down in Judah and said, will you go with me to fight against the Moabites? Jehoshaphat says, sure, I'll go. My people are your people. My horses are just like your horses. But how are we going to get there? Because there were several options. You can see that it might have been easiest to go right down here across the Jordan River and down to Moab. But most of the Moabites were in the north. So they had the strongest defenses there. And so Jehoram says, you know, really what I'd rather do is come down here around the Dead Sea and through Edom and up through the southern border. So there were two reasons. One was that the Moabites would be least prepared if they came from the south. And the second was that they would go right through the land of Edom. And it just so happened that Edom was subject to Judah at the time. So they would have extra troops that they could pick up on the way through. So let's look in 2 Kings 3, verse 9. We'll pick up the story there. It says, So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Now from Jerusalem down to the southern border of Moab was about 100 miles But the commentaries say that they probably had to do some detours because the terrain was rough, it wasn't in good shape. So seven days, and they ran out of water. Now there was a brook that went through that area of the land, but it must have been dried up because they had not been able to find anything. What, exclaimed Jehoram, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? He's like... I think, I think God called us, and now he's just going to throw us away. Things didn't look so good. And Jehoram was immediately distressed. I can't say I blame him. I find myself in that place sometimes. And if I was there, I might have been tempted to become discouraged. When things don't go like we plan, isn't it pretty easy to jump to conclusions of despair Are we going to lose our house? Are the children going to make poor choices? What if I lose my job? What am I going to do if my health fails? But true faith in God does not yield to despair. Now in this story, here we have this king saying, I think God called us together. That's the first mention of God in the story And lo and behold, it comes from Jehoram, the wicked king who doesn't believe in God. But what's he doing? He's blaming God for the trouble. Jehoshaphat has a completely different response. Let's look. Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here 
through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Jehoram looked down. Jehoshaphat looked up. Jehoram saw obstacles. Jehoshaphat saw solutions. Jehoram had fear. Jehoshaphat had courage. Jehoram blamed God. Jehoshaphat looked beyond the difficulties and found hope in God. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Well, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Now, don't you love this? There is never a crisis with the Lord. Here is evidence of God's leading even before they had ever asked him for help. Because somehow... God got Elisha clear from up there in Israel all the way down into the desert of Edom. I don't know how he did it. That was a forsaken desert. Maybe somehow he convinced Elisha to go along with the army, but there he was in the camp. And so Jehoshaphat was pleased. He said, the word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to Jehoram, Why do you involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He wasn't happy to see Jehoram. Here was a king who had worshipped Baal and was not honoring God. And now when he gets into distress, he's coming and asking for help. But Jehoram says, Oh no, because it was God who called us together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Now, just moments before, he was talking about how God had called them together. Now his despair is so deep that he is convinced that God is going to deliver them to ruin. I suspect Elisha was a little bit exasperated. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. It's true that the wicked often enjoy blessings of the righteous because of their association with them. And a lot of times they don't realize it. And then Elisha says something surprising. Now bring me a harpist. Is that what you would expect at that moment? Here they're inquiring of the Lord, and Elisha says, bring me a harpist. Now, it was common for prophets and kings in those days when they got agitated or frustrated about something to kind of get into the mood with music. Saul did this when he asked David to play for him. Elisha was clearly distressed that Jehoram was there, and so he thought maybe some music would lift his soul. He might have had another reason for using it. And it says, while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha. This is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, and yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And oh, by the way, he will also deliver Moab into your hands. Now, we know from reading scripture that God could have just spoken the word and the water would have filled the valleys, right? Somehow, in this case, it was important for the people to have a part in it. But can you imagine if you were one of those soldiers out there and you're hot? You remember being super thirsty sometime 
All you can think about is water, and there is none. And the prophet says, go ahead and fill the valley with ditches. Now, how did that sound to them? I don't know, but I think the music helped. I asked Donald to help me out on this. Because you heard it once, go fill the valley with ditches. Now let's try it again. This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For the Lord says you will see neither rain nor wind, and yet this valley will be filled with water. Does that not inspire you? Are you ready to go dig? I think there was some kind of psychology to that. Thank you. Well, it's interesting because Scripture goes on. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. They worked hard. They filled that valley with ditches, and the next morning, God came through in a big way. Can you imagine how wonderful that was? They drank. They were not thirsty anymore. And they probably, at that point, remembered the rest of the promise, where God said, I'm going to give you victory as well. Now, when you read on through the story, you find out that the Moabites, CIA, was in good functioning order because they had heard that the Israelites were coming from the south, and so they mobilized their entire army, and they came together that day that the Israelites were digging. They came together, and they uh, got themselves on the border, uh, just at the edge of Moab, and they were waiting for morning. Well, the next morning, when they got up, the sunrise was exceptionally red, and as they looked down on that valley, the, the reflection of the sun made the water look red. And they looked at each other and they said, those crazy people, they must have all killed each other during the night. They're all dead. Let's go in and take the plunder. And so completely unsuspecting, they just wandered down into camp and they were routed by the Israelites who sent them running once again. And the battle was done. Not by power of human effort, but by God's intervention. But he used their effort to accomplish his plan. You know, the Bible is about real people. And it's for real people. It's stories that God wants us to hear. Keith Miller says it's easy for us to turn it into a book of principles. He says it's about stories. God shares these stories with us because he wants the stories of his people today, your story and mine, to intersect with the stories of his people then. It's not simply a historical account. It's something that we can learn from and intersect with. It's a divine record about people just like us who experienced a friendship with God. Some of you may have read a biography of George Mueller. This is one of the books we read when we were first married, and it had a huge impression on me. He began to build orphanages in London in the 1800s. 
Now, his primary purpose in doing this was to show the power of God. His primary purpose was not to serve the children in the orphanages, but he wanted to show other people that just through prayer, he could accomplish what God wanted him to do. And so he vowed that he would never ask for money. And he, his plan was to feed and clothe and educate these children. And by the time his ministry finished, he had over 1,800 children in his orphanages. But back when it was a little bit smaller than that, there was a morning when they woke up and the children were standing around the breakfast table and there was not a morsel of food in the house, nor was there any money with which to go buy something. And George Mueller stood in front of those children and he raised his hand and he said, children, God does not want us to be late to school. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And he began, God, thank you for the food you are about to provide for us. And when he had said amen, as the children were sitting down to the table, of course, you might guess, there was a knock on the door. And standing there was the local baker who said, you know, God woke me up this morning and I had this feeling that maybe you needed bread. And so at 2 o'clock this morning, I started baking for you and the children. And George Mueller was not surprised. He was delighted at what God has done, and he passed the bread to the children who began to eat, at which point there was another knock on the door. And the milkman said, you know, my, my cart broke down just outside your door, and I need to unload the milk so I can repair the cart. Could you use it? And the children had milk and bread. Now when George Mueller lifted his hand to pray, I believe he was digging a ditch. When I look around the Calamesa church, I think we are a church of ditch diggers. Some of you are in pretty good digging shape. You live your lives by faith. There are others of us who aren't quite so experienced at it. What does it look like? What does it look like? It may be that you're in a job situation that's really difficult. You know, it's pretty easy to sit around and complain about what's going wrong. But maybe God wants you to intervene in some way, to make a difference in that work setting. Or maybe even in this economy, he's asking you to dig a ditch and to apply for another job. Maybe you're struggling with your finances and it's causing a hardship on your family. But might God be suggesting that you dig a ditch, pay your tithe anyways, prove, like Malachi says, how God wants to open the windows of heaven? Maybe there's a relational issue where God wants you to dig a ditch of reconciliation. It might be anger or OCD or depression that's your thorn in the flesh. Maybe you've prayed about it for years and it keeps resurfacing. Dig a ditch. Make an appointment to go see a therapist. Maybe you're suffering from chronic pain or a health issue that makes it difficult to move. And maybe digging your ditch will just be vowing to step out in faith and take a short walk every day. Whatever your situation, God wants to provide. Now, I tend to live life on the safe side, I'll tell you. When I think about digging a ditch, 
I start calculating the cost. What will be the emotional and the relational and the financial implications? And do we have the... Do we have the resources that we need? And what are my strengths? And does that fit with what this is? But we never want to get in a situation where we hear God say, dig. And we stand back and say, well, ditch digging really isn't my gift. I'm not so good at that. Maybe God is asking us to dig without trying to figure out if we have all the contingencies covered. Now, I will admit there's a fine line between faith and presumption, and it's still confusing to me. I don't have it all figured out by any means. We don't want to dig where God hasn't asked us to dig. Several years ago, I was down at my sister's house. We were swimming, and her nephew was, uh, my nephew, her son, was about, I think, 18 months at the time, just toddling around the pool in his little diaper, and... um, She was in the pool, and she holds up her hand like parents do, and she says, jump. And immediately, he jumped in the water, and he laughed, and we did this over and over again until he got tired, and he went toddling off to do something else, and we got distracted. Until, shortly after that, we heard a splash at the other end of the pool and looked down and saw this little hand waving from under the water. And we realized that He hadn't connected that there needed to be someone there to catch him. So she had not said to jump, but he had jumped anyway. And we don't ever want to do that with God, where we're moving out ahead of him. But I came across a a quote in Patriarchs and Prophets that I think is so powerful. The voice of God speaks, go forward. We should obey this command even though our eyes cannot penetrate the darkness. The obstacles that hinder our progress will never disappear before a halting, doubting spirit. Those who defer obedience until every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will never obey at all. Faith courageously urges us and advance, hoping all things Believing all things. In August, I had the privilege of attending a leadership conference. And while I was there, I heard a sermon based on the Gospel Commission. You remember it. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Where is Jerusalem for you? Jerusalem is filled with people who are like you. You look around and you go, these are my people. I feel comfortable here. I connect with them. And God says, you'll be my witnesses there. Sometimes it's easy to to ignore the sharing of our faith with those that we love the most. But he says also, I want you to go to Judea. Now, Judea is close by. They're not quite like us. We feel fairly comfortable with them, but there's some things we just don't quite understand. So it might be a different gender or ethnicity or a different denomination. But there are many things that we hold in common. God says, be my witnesses in Judea. 
And then he says, I want you to go to Samaria. And the speaker said, you know when you're in Samaria because it's that place where you lock your doors when you start driving through. Do you know Samaria? God calls us to be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but in Samaria. And I realized that day that I have spent my life in Jerusalem. It's comfortable there. But I tell you, that day I felt the very strongest call that I have ever felt in my life. And to my great surprise, it was to Samaria. Now I want to share with you a story about the Calamasa Church that intersects with this story. John talked earlier about the House of Decision, the house for the homeless in Cherry Valley. Our churches helped to support them for a number of years. BJ operates just like George Mueller. He never asks for money. And his stories of faith are incredible. Well, it's been almost two years now since BJ came and talked to the pastoral staff and he said, I may be shooting myself in the foot here because you all have been supporting us. But he said, I wonder if God might be calling the Calamasa Church to open a shelter. He said, you're only receiving half of the blessing because if all you give is money, you're missing out on so much. And your church is so full of resources with financial resources and professional resources. He said, you could easily do this. So the pastors talked and prayed about it. They brought it to the board of elders. And I can tell you, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, that would be nice. That would be a nice thing for our church to do. Not me. I like it here in Jerusalem. But somebody would like doing that. Well, a few months later, there was a visitor to our church, not a member of the Adventist faith, but she came, and on that day, something happened to be said about the house of decision. And she was touched by it, and she made an appointment and came and talked to Pastor John. And in the course of the conversation, he mentioned that we were in this process of praying about uh, possibly starting a shelter of our own. And she said, I would like to give you some money for that. Well, that was confirmation as well. And we all got together and we praised God and we said, okay, we're making progress now. Several things had come together, but to me, there was one more thing that God had to do. We needed a leader and in my mind, it was very clear, because if God wanted us to do this, he was going to send some person who had done this before, who had lots of experience, who knew exactly what needed to be done, who would walk into John's office someday and say, here I am. God has called me to lead a shelter at Calamasa. That would do it for me. That would convince me. And then this summer... I was confronted with the story from 2 Kings about the same time that I heard the story on the, the sermon on the Gospel Commission. And it occurred to me, what if God is asking us to dig some ditches? What if he wants us to buy a house and start making plans? Well, it turns out 
I believe he was working because when I came and talked to Pastor John about that, he told me that that very week he and Ken had been talking about the fact that it was time to start looking for a house for the shelter. So we took it to the board, we organized a task force, and we've been meeting for the last several months. I want to tell you who's on the committee in case you would like to talk to someone about it. Raul Garcia, who did the offering call, Cindy Bloom, Becky Jacobson-Cohen, Raul Sandoval, Debbie Sanker, and Donna Zupan. We don't know exactly where we're being led, but we have narrowed it down to three possible populations. One would be aging out teens. These are children who have been in the foster care system, who are turning 18, and they have no place to go. There are 425 teens who age out every year in San Bernardino County. Second population possibility would be women with young children. And thirdly, we might serve entire families. What we're doing is we're talking with leaders from other shelters. We're networking with people in both San Bernardino and Riverside counties. We're learning as much as we can. We're starting to dig. Now, this might not be your particular calling, and I'm not trying to convince you that you need to be part of a shelter. But as I've shared this idea with people through the church in the last couple months, I've been amazed at how many people resonate with this idea. And I believe that there are many people in this church who would like to be involved. But it might be that God's calling you to something entirely different, some other ministry or some other very personal step of faith. I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about it. I would encourage you to share that with someone. Create some accountability. Talk to a friend. Talk to a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a child or a senior citizen or anywhere in between. God has dig ditches that need, he needs us to dig. The Israelites were stuck in the desert. Again, they'd been there before. They were without water. They were close to despair. And from their perspective, they had run out of options. But God had a plan. A plan with an unexpected twist in which they would play a part. I suspect we've all spent time in the desert at some time. Are you there now? I believe God wants us to get to a different place. He wants to lead us to great things. He wants to give us victory over our enemies and our problems. He wants to satisfy our thirst. He might perform a miracle right before our eyes, or he might just ask us to help him. He might ask us to do something that requires some hard work, to get out of our comfort zone. He might even ask us to go to Samaria. I believe God is longing for us to take that step in faith, to dig some ditches. Where do you sense his leading? What do you think he might want you to do? Are you listening for his instructions? Are you up to the challenge? Calamesa Church, are there any ditch diggers in the house? of these the weary and 
tragedy me to the turn away all my needs you have supplied when I was dead you gave me life how could I not give it away so freely homes that are broken, follow you into the world, meet the needs for the poor and the needy God, follow you into the world, use my hands, use my feet to make your kingdom
And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and strength as we go forward to follow his lead and to find his picture-perfect plan. Amen.